tonight we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets, and uh, one that's really had an influence on my life. And uh, I'll say at the outset, uh, my voice sounds a little creaky. I will just comfort you. I don't have any sore throat. I don't feel bad. But I've had a cough since about Christmas, so just it, it sounds like tuberculosis. It's not. It's good. But uh, no, I, you may hear me cough, but it, I really I'm feeling good tonight. And I'm glad to be here, and I appreciate the elders giving us the opportunity. Um, you know, they really take a step in faith to trust people to come to the pulpit and teach. And it's a weighty responsibility, and I, I'm grateful for the chance to prepare. I'm grateful for what the Lord's done. Uh, we've, in our family anyway, have been working through my process of working through this. So the kids and Sarah have to listen to me multiple, multiple times talking through this and, and in morning worship and whatever. So uh, it's been really good to marinate in the Word and be in this time. But uh, we're going to look at the prayer in the book of Habakkuk. And by the way, I'll say Habakkuk is the way I say it. Sermon audio about 50-50, whether it's Habakkuk or Habakkuk. Uh, So I guess he said it the way he said it. Uh, Anyway, I want to note at the outset that this book has fascinated me since about 1986 when I was first exposed to the absolutely mind-jarring picture of our sovereign and holy God recorded by this prophet. In Habakkuk, God draws back the curtain of his purpose just enough to show us that history really is about God and his glory above all. Or in the classic words from chapter 1, look at the nations, or look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am going to do a work in your days that you would not believe even if told. Before going further, let's turn in prayer to this God who directs history precisely to his will. And in his great mercy and astonishing grace, he's also directed us to come to him in prayer. Let's do that now. Father in heaven, it is amazing that you as the almighty God, the creator, the author of history desires us to pray and as we come to you tonight Lord I lay this before you I lay all of the words written on this paper the words that will come out of my mouth and I pray that you would make them teach truth about you through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would affect the lives of those who hear this message and Lord as we think about the big picture of history, certainly as it affected Habakkuk and as it affects us today, as you are glorified and as you are lifted up, that we, Lord, would see the glory of the Almighty God even in the words we study tonight. Be with each of us, Lord. I know that there are many things going on, whether at work or in family, health, finances, struggles in all sorts of ways. Lord, I pray that we would be given minds to hear and that you would reach our hearts and you would show us what you would have us to know about you tonight. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so this 
The specific prayer that we're looking at tonight is recorded in chapter 3 of Habakkuk. I'm planning to read the entire chapter, but I want to make sure we see some of the very unique features of this prayer at the outset. Verse 1 tells us that this is a prayer of the prophet Habakkuk, and it is according to Shigayanoth. And the strange word Shigayanoth is unclear to us today. It's used in Psalm 7, where the description of the psalm reads, uh, Shigayan of David. So I think there's a plural singular thing happening. But <clears throat> a Shigayan of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. The meanings suggested by scholars include a musical term, a liturgical term, a type of psalm or a lament. For our purpose tonight, I want to focus on simply the presence of the word. This is written for others to read. It's not simply a spirit-inspired record of what Habakkuk prayed in the quietness of his heart. So it's kind of a different prayer in that purpose. Uh, skip to the end of the chapter where we read in, at the end of 319 to the choir master with stringed instruments. I think this was intended to be sung or recited by the people of Judah, much like the Psalms were. And like the Psalms, this prayer is to teach us eternal truth about God and to move us to glorify Him. So, different than some of the prayers that have been talked about in this series that we've been going through for more than a year about the prayers in the Scripture, this one is a public... It, it was written to become a public prayer. I'm not saying that it was not a prayer of Habakkuk at this moment when he was writing it, but it, it was part of the liturgy of the nation of Israel. So, with the idea in mind that this would be recited or sung corporately in some form, let's prepare to read it. But before I do, I want to point out one final thing to consider. This was written immediately prior to the Babylonian invasion and the destruction of Jerusalem, including Solomon's temple, and the death of all but a remnant of God's people. That's the time frame. Those who recited these words are living in the context of the loss of everything they have known. The fo their foundations have literally been torn away and their own existence is as a small remnant of what was once a nation of God's covenant people. And in our hands tonight, we have the word given from God to these exiles and to us as well. This is kind of long, so if you, I, what I was going to have you do is stand because I think that's a, a way to publicly read a prayer like this. But if you're not able, it is kind of long, so choose what's necessary for you. But stand if you're able, and we will read the prayer of the prophet Habakkuk. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoath. O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness 
was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was it your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. And at and the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. He may be seated. Tonight's focus will be on the first and last parts of this prayer. The middle portion is a poetic summary of the Lord's work to establish his covenant people during the Exodus and after. And it presents an overall picture of a mighty protector and a God who exhibits overwhelming power over even the heavens and the earth. If you study this on your own, spend time looking at this awesome picture of our omnipotent God. And that's the problem with having an entire chapter. I just couldn't fit it all in. But the picture here of who God is and what he did what he did during the Exodus, what he did to establish this little tiny people group and called it his own. It's just amazing. And the pictures here are worth uh, much more than any uh, poetry book that you could study for your kids. So it's something to do and I am not leaving it out because it's not worthwhile. I'm leaving it out just because we have a very particular message to get to tonight and it focuses on the beginning and the end of this. In verse 2, Habakkuk hears and fears. Chapter 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you 
And your work, O Lord, do I fear. The word work in this verse is the same word that is used in chapter 1, verse 5. And you're going to see me going back and forth to chapter 1 because I think the point of this for us today is going to be to hear what God is doing but not isolated to page 878 of my Bible. This is in a context of the life of the people around Habakkuk, in the context of the life of this prophet himself, and in the context of what God did at this point in history that was pivotal. It was pivotal in who he showed himself to be. And I think that is the message for us today. So let's jump back and look at chapter 1 for some context. In chapter 1, verse 5... Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. This is the work of the Lord. And it's a work that is, it's hard to even imagine because it's a work of the wrath of God. So, At this beginning in chapter 1, Habakkuk is complaining. And that's what it's called in the pericope heading at the the, most of the Bibles I've looked at or most of the versions, Habakkuk's complaint. Listen to how he addresses God in 1 and 2 and following. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence And you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. And uh, he is actually telling God that you're not doing what I think you should be doing. And the book starts with Habakkuk going to the Lord because the situation in Judah historically is going downhill. Years ago, from Habakkuk's time, the Assyrians invaded and deported the northern tribes and repopulated the area with foreign people who have brought in their own gods to combine with what they see as this local deity, Yahweh, that lived among the people in this northern kingdom. And idolatry is rampant. The Assyrians also rule over the kings of Judah and their vassal state to Assyria, the massive empire at the time. And it's likely that Habakkuk is living during the time of Josiah. Now it's not tight on that, but that's kind of Get you put put you in the biblical frame of mind. It's the Josiah time frame, and <clears throat> Josiah is making an effort at reform, following the disastrous reigns of Manasseh and Ammon. Habakkuk sees Baal worship all around him, corruption in the priesthood, as well as violence in the streets and injustice at the highest levels. I believe Habakkuk was thinking about reformation in a manner similar to Josiah. 
We might even say he was looking for revival. That's a, a modern way we would say it. So Habakkuk approaches God and in essence says, God, I'm crying for help and you do not save. You will not hear. You will not save. You idly look at wrong. And justice never goes forth. It seems very clear that Habakkuk believes he understands the problem facing the people and what God should be doing about it. And here, God pulls the rug out from under him. Look at verse 5. Look at among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. The ESV says it. You wouldn't believe even if you were told. I say the ESV, the NIV. You would not believe even if you were told. You will not understand this, Habakkuk. It's what God tells him. And then he says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a dreaded and they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. And here he goes on to describe the destruction that's coming in the form of the Babylonian army. And it is fearsome. And God knows it. And God says right here, I am doing this. This isn't a matter of corralling what was naturally happening and making it work out to his will. I am raising up the Chaldeans. Chaldeans, Babylonians, same thing. And this is God's purpose. And he tells Habakkuk, I'm going to do this and you wouldn't believe it even if I told you. In order for us to see what goes on in the heart of the prophet Habakkuk, and I think by extension what we are to learn, we need to examine how we think about how things should work. We all come with expectations of how our life should play out. Usually, there is a cause and effect logic that we apply. This is our natural bent. Good people ought to generally have good things happen to them. Good parenting results in grateful adult children who love the Lord and bring lots of well-behaved grandchildren over to visit. Good health habits result in strong bodies that don't hurt and are seldom ill. Good moral character should result in respect from neighbors and co-workers. We don't like to admit it, but we have an expectation that God should be dealing with the evil things we see all around us and are a bit surprised that he isn't getting with it by now. In short, we're just like Habakkuk at the beginning of this book. The question for tonight is whether we are willing to become like Habakkuk at the end of this book. Circumstances do not demonstrate God's favor. I want to repeat that. Your circumstances do not demonstrate God's favor. The cause and effect logic isn't cause and effect after all. Biblical parents have unbelieving children. Godly men and women get cancer or ALS or strokes for no apparent reason. Our morality can cost us our job and violence kills godly young people. Abortion is still a sacrament in this country and perversion receives public honor instead of shame. 
cause and effect just isn't always there. If we are to truly understand what change took place in Habakkuk, we need to know what actually happened. Habakkuk wanted God to make improvements in his society. But God responded to him by telling him that society itself was about to become a nightmare beyond comprehension. So I'm going to take a little detour. Again, this is part of our history lesson to find out this Habakkuk that had a complaint in chapter 1 who went to God and said, justice is being perverted is the same Habakkuk at the end in his prayer when he is before God saying, basically, your will be done. That's my paraphrase. So, history lesson time. We're going to turn to Lamentations 2, 17 to 22. And this is Jeremiah's description of what happened when the Babylonian army invaded. It's the Lament Over Jerusalem. Pretty famous book, but it fits right here in this context because God tells Habakkuk, this is what I'm going to do. Jeremiah lives to witness it. Lamentations 2.17 The Lord has done what he purposed. Again, it's his purpose. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival, uh, summoned as if to a festival day, my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. And the same scene is also found in Ezekiel 5, where God himself describes to Ezekiel what he is about to do to his chosen people in his holy city. And lest we think this is a small part, there is a tremendous number of verses in scripture devoted to this event. This is a watershed moment for the people of Israel. Significant just like the Exodus. And in this case though, it's the wrath of God being poured out in judgment on his people. And I think we ought to take notice. So Ezekiel 5 5 through 17. Thus Oh, by the way, I just wanted to mention in case, I mean, we're just jumping Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, wherever. What's happening here is 
Ezekiel is a prophet in exile. He's not in the land of Israel. He's been deported. He is playing out or doing these role plays of God's prophecy so the people in exile can see what's happening. And God is actually telling him what's going on in Jerusalem. So that's the Ezekiel part of it. Jeremiah was there to observe it. Ezekiel is being told by God. But in all cases, this is God saying, hey, look at this. Habakkuk, you wouldn't believe it, even if I told you. And now we are reading this because I want you to believe it. I want you to know what God is, has done. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of nations with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations. And against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers. And I will execute judgments on you, and any of you who survive, I will scatter to all the winds. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely... Because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare and I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you. And a third part I will scatter to all the winds and will unsheathe the sword after them. Thus my anger shall spend itself and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself and they shall know that I am the Lord that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them moreover I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you and in the sight of all who pass by you shall be a reproach and a taunt a warning and a horror to the nations all around you when I execute judgments on you in anger and fury and with furious rebukes, I am the Lord, I have spoken. When I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, and when I bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread, I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Maybe now we can understand why God said, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe even if told. It is hard to read these verses. It's hard to hear them and to know that God brings this about in his wrath on his own people. 
God is executing cause and effect at a much different level than what we imagine. The covenant was broken and justice is being delivered. Today, we look for signs of God working in our society. Generally, this involves us wanting to be allowed to believe and act like Christians in public. And at the far end of our hopes, we would want to see God bring a revival that stirs a general moral improvement in our culture. Habakkuk was looking for that as well when he wondered, How long shall I cry for help and you do not answer? God's cause and effect is not this simple revival. God's justice is not delivered by whitewashing a corrupt wall. His righteousness and holiness demand true justice. Make no mistake, it will be done. I hope this helps us understand more deeply what Habakkuk prayed in his prayer. So now we're going to flip over to Habakkuk 3 again, into the prayer. In verse 2, Your work, Lord, do I fear. Now that we've seen this, I think we fear it too. Even if Habakkuk only grasped a portion of what was coming, it was dreadful. In the midst of years, revive it. So if you, if you haven't caught on, I'm in chapter 3, verse 2. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Even though the Lord brings the wrath, it is also only the hand of God that can deliver us from this wrath. In wrath, remember mercy. What a part of a prayer. He's no longer complaining, Lord, what are you doing? He's saying, Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. As he talks about the reviving it in the midst of years, revive it in the midst of years, make it known. Reviving it is asking God to deliver us like he did during the Exodus. Revive what you do, Lord. Specifically, we call upon the character of God to remember mercy because we actually deserve the wrath. Mercy is not receiving the wrath that is truly due our sins. And we as individuals and nations must recognize that mercy has been extended continually from the first moments of our rebellion against a holy God. We are in that mercy time right now. One picosecond beyond your sin, wrath should have been delivered. We are in mercy. Verse 3 begins the description of God's powerful deliverance during the Exodus and the founding of the nation. It's, it's kind of hard to exactly pinpoint which particular part he's talking about all the time. But in verse 16, so I'm, I'm again skipping like I told you ahead of time. In verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. 
I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. As I look at this, as I look at that description of trembling, quivering, rottenness entering into my bones, I'm reminded of Isaiah 6. When Isaiah sees his commissioning vision, woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen God Almighty. And in that vision of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, we see a man who considers himself undone. Just totally, totally torn apart. That's what Habakkuk is demonstrating with his words. We are seeing the power of the Almighty and it is a fearful thing for a man to witness. And as we move forward, that to me is what changed Habakkuk from looking to God saying, look around us, we have all of these things. There's violence in the street, there's corruption in the government, there is injustice in the priesthood, there are vile things happening, Lord do something about it. He has seen in, his, in this prophecy, in God's working out with him, in what happens in chapter 2, he has seen who God really is. And he is a man who is undone. No longer is he challenging God to question. He is simply understanding, I am Habakkuk and God is God. <clears throat> so he now says that he will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. So different from chapter 1. Gone is the complaint. Gone is the why. Gone is the how long. It has been replaced, and I might say refined, into a faith that can say, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk is now experiencing what the Lord told him to write down in chapter 2. A famous verse out of the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2. Let's go to just turn over to chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, starts, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. But the righteous shall live by his faith. That verse is quoted about three times in the New Testament as well. It's kind of a turning point here in this book of Habakkuk. And we're going to see that actually played out in Habakkuk's attitude. The righteous shall live by faith. It's a phrase that's often corrupted or misused by those who would take lightly the wrath of God that we have looked at tonight and would presume upon the mercy that God has thus far extended. When Habakkuk says the fields yield no food or the stalls are empty, it's not the same as finding out that Dylan's has only canned vegetables instead of fresh food or that we've had a drought and beef is really, really expensive. When the Babylonians invaded, the whole society was dismantled. That's why I was reading to you from Ezekiel and from Lamentations. It wasn't that there was no food. It was that there were no farmers. It wasn't that there were no eggs. 
It was that there were no chickens to lay the eggs that would grow into next year's chickens. If you listen during that recitation out of Ezekiel, starvation, pestilence, famine, disease, that's what they were facing. And those are the people that were able to read this prophecy. Remember Habakkuk was writing during Josiah's time frame, roughly? Then we have the invasion. Then we have the deportations and the death of basically the way it's described, not just two-thirds. There's, you know, a third gets killed by this, a third gets killed by that, and the third I'm going to scatter to the winds and chase him down with a sword. In the picture that Ezekiel does, he takes his hair that he's shaved off and divides it into three piles and scatters it to the wind and goes chasing after it with a sword. There is just a tiny remnant left. Those are the people who are reading this prayer as a corporate worship. And then the generations following that, the Nehemiahs, the Ezra's, the people who have come back, they're reading it. They know what has happened. Way more than we know. That's why I want to impress upon you, this is a corporate prayer. This is a group prayer. And they really know what happened. When the righteous live by faith, it is the life that understands God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Compare the change in Habakkuk from verse 1-2. That's where he was like, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? With the end of chapter 3 where he prays, Though there be no food, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He is no longer trying to hold God accountable for withholding the punishment of the wicked. Let me say that again. He is no longer trying to hold God accountable for withholding the punishment of those wicked people. He says, I'm going to wait patiently for the day of trouble to come upon those people who invaded us. This is the very heart of the gospel. When we live by faith, we not only trust the word of the Lord, we trust the ways of the Lord. His timing is perfect, even his timing in dealing with the evil around us. Let's go to the New Testament for a minute and look at Romans 3, 23 through 26. We're all familiar, hopefully familiar with it from going through it in our church service not too long ago. But Romans 3.23-3.26 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When the righteous live by faith, we understand that God's divine forbearance gave us time to believe in Christ Jesus. In wrath, he remembered mercy. And we can know 
that even when the stalls are empty, we can take joy in the God of our salvation. When the God of our salvation is our joy and He is our strength, then we can go without fear to the places He calls us to walk. We can be like the deer upon the crags, jumping around without a care. That's how Habakkuk ends this prayer. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer, like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Total confidence and trust in the middle, in the midst of a very fearful place. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been in Colorado standing like on the edge or near the edge looking over, you're like, Ooh, that's a long way down. And there have been a few times when I've got that experience of saying, uh-uh. I, I, I am backing up. I will not even stand here for another minute because I don't trust my feet. I don't trust myself to be right here. And then you look at your children and they're six feet farther than you would ever dare to venture. But the point is, with God being your hope of salvation, your trust can be in Him and He can make your feet like the feet of the deer to go where he calls you to go. And as we look at this prayer, as we look and imagine and remember that there were real people reading this who had really gone through these times or who could walk back and see the destroyed temple. Imagine Ezra or Nehemiah going back and it was all gone. I mean, they, they, they were saying there wasn't one stone upon another. It was a wreck. And I hate to say it, they would have known people who died, whether it's their relatives or friends or whoever. It was God's wrath laying there bare for 70 years. And that's the level of wrath that God brought. It wasn't just a revival to say, we're going to start having a return to righteousness. It was a judgment that brought righteousness. I want to end by returning to Lamentations. As the prophet Jeremiah writes about this same crushing punishment from God, his heart also turns to worship. May we all grow in faith so that our hearts worship as we experience the righteous outpouring of God's wrath on his enemies around us, it will happen. There will be a day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And the righteous will be glorified and the unrighteous will still bow their knee. And they will do it because God is God. And it will be an eternal punishment that makes this look like something easy to stomach. And God, in His justice, must do this. But, the righteous shall live by faith. Lamentations 3, 21-26 but, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul who seeks Him, 
It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Amen.